1 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue in our study through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. Um, We're going to jump right into it. We're going to be talking about uh, liberty and legalism today and the balance between the two. Um, And uh, by way of introduction to our text, uh, let me just ask you a few questions. I'm not necessarily looking for a vocal response. Uh, I'm looking for more of just a contemplative response on your part. But uh, let me ask you a few questions. Is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Is it okay for Christians to smoke? Is it okay for Christians to smoke pot? What if pot was legalized? Would it be okay for Christians to smoke pot then? What about a, they have a medical marijuana card? Is it okay for Christians to smoke pot in that instance? Is it okay for Christians to go to a nightclub and go dancing? What if it's with their spouse? Is it okay for Christians to watch an R-rated movie? Is it okay for Christians to watch a PG-13 movie? You say, yeah, PG-13, but that's the limit right there. No R-rated movies. Okay, well, what if I told you that the MPAA, the ratings organization, gives PG-13 ratings to movies that have the F word in them? They do. So what would you say then? Is it okay? Is it okay to dress up for Halloween? Well, no, you know, no, what if it's not a scary costume? What if, you know, what if the kid dresses up like SpongeBob? Is that okay? See, depending on who you talk to, you're going to get different answers to each one of these questions, and that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know the background. Bear with me. Maybe you're, you've just joined us. So, so the basic background of this epistle of, of 1 Corinthians, and for that matter, 2 Corinthians, is that the Apostle Paul has established a church. He established this church in the city of Corinth, Corinth, a very pagan city, a very immoral city. And, and you know, the reason that we as Christians go into immor- immoral cities, typically in, in a missional perspective, is that we want to bring Christ into that culture. And that was Paul's objective. And so he establishes the church, and his intention is to bring Jesus to, uh, to the Corinthians. But as we've noticed and have been discussing... Rather than having the church make its mark on the community, the community was making more of its mark within the church, and that's the occasion in the writing for 1 Corinthians, 1 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul and the Corinthians exchanging letters back and forth, he trying to get them back on course, and them asking some clarifying questions. And one such clarifying question that the Corinthians apparently wrote back and asked of Paul was, this issue having to do with legalism versus liberty. This, this issue of meat. Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? So we pick it up now. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says this, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love Edifies. Paul's going to get into this a little bit more when we get to chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, the, the, the quintessential Bible passage on the subject of love. And we'll read there that he says that you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if it's without love, it's, it's really worthless. 
Paul continues, verse 2, he says, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And it's an amazing thing to me how often we judge a situation or a circumstance without knowing all the, all the particulars, right? We're really good at that. I can pass judgment on you all day long and not know all the details of your life, and you can do the same with me. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, you know, you think you know something, you really don't. Verse 3, he continues, he says, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. In other words, God's the only one who knows everything. That's Paul's point. Verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, uh, we know uh, that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So, you know, people making sacrifices to idols. Idols don't mean anything. That's what Paul is saying. As a mature Christian, you know that. An idol is, is just a ridiculous nothing. It means nothing compared to God. He continues, verse 5, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. In other words, he's, he's not saying that there are many gods and many lords. Some people read this and they go, well, wait a minute. Are there other gods? Are there other lords? No, basically what he's saying is that there are other gods and other lords kind of along the same lines as, well, Isaiah talks about it. In Isaiah 44, you read where Isaiah, you know, says basically, you guys, I'll paraphrase, you guys are nuts. You you cut down a tree and you take half of the wood and you make it into a god, into an idol, And then you take the other half of the wood and you throw it on the fire. And over that fire, you warm yourself and you cook your food. And it never dawns on you as you worship this thing that you've made with your hands that it's made out of the same thing that, you know, you're you're burning uh, for for your fire, that you're cooking your, this common thing that you're cooking your meal over, that you're warming yourself by. He's like, you know, on the one hand, you're worshiping. On the other hand, the same material you're burning. And, And he's like, there's, there's a disconnect there. And so this is what Paul is saying here in verse 5. He says, even if there are so-called gods, uh, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet, verse 6, for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So Paul's talking about this issue of food offered to idols. Now, this was a pagan practice in his day. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically what would happen is that these in Corinth who practiced a pagan religion would worship their pagan god by offering an animal sacrifice. And the way that they would offer an animal sacrifice basically was that one-third of the choice cuts of beef were to be offered as a sacrifice to that pagan god. And then another third of the choice cut of beef would be given to the pagan priest, sort of as, an, as, a, as a gift to this priest. And then one third of the choice cuts were yours to keep for yourself. This was how the practice worked. And so because the priest could only keep a certain portion of meat. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, they don't have freezers in that day. There's only a certain amount of the meat that is actually going to be practical and useful for this priest, but he's getting more than that. So what the priest would do is he would take 
part of the meat that he was given as a, as a gift to him, and he would go to the local meat market, and he would sell it. And then what else they would do is the, the priest would take this one-third of the, of the choice beef that was given, um, and he, it, that was presented as an offering to the idol, the idea, the understanding was that the idol wasn't interested in the physical beef. The idol was interested in the, the spiritual, the soul, if you will, of the beef. And so when they would present the choice offering to the idol, it was just for the soul of that, of that animal. And so after a, a specified period of time, while the meat was still good, they made the offering and then the, 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 the idol, the god, uh, little g, was satisfied with the soul offering of this meat, well then now you could remove the meat and the meat's still good. So what the priest would do uh, is exactly what I would do. He takes the meat and he goes down to the meat place, the butcher, and he, and he sells that too, you know, a little cash, a little thing to, to pad his, his, his pocket. So this was the standard practice. Now, some people were weirded out by this, especially some of, of these Christians. We're going to talk about this today, but they were weirded out by it. So when this meat that had been offered to idols... Um, came to market, so to speak, it was, it was typically greatly reduced in price. You got it as a bargain because not everybody was cool with it. There was a certain con- segment of society that was weirded out and said, hey, that was offered to a, a pagan you know, god and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And so it was, it was a bargain at twice the price, man. It was just, it was offered really cheap. It's the best cut of meat and it's on sale. It's kind of like that old joke. It's the Jewish dilemma, pork at half price, you know? And so there, <laughs> so there's the deal. Um, and, and so, you know, the, uh, the, the legalist by definition, those that fell into the category of, of, of being a legalist, being weirded out, um, the legalist, by definition, was that person that was like, you know, again, uncomfortable with this. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. Their legalist, again, by definition, is somebody who's, who's a little bit black and white in terms of their dealing. They're, they're like, you know, a, a Corinthian legalist would say, I don't want to have anything to do with pagan meat. That was offered to a pagan god. You know, it's, it's, it's unclean. Stay back. Man, and, and so this legalist would want to maintain strict separation. They would want to isolate themselves. Uh, they would want to, you know, isolate themselves from the world and from, from this pagan God. And it's like, that's going to adversely affect me and influence my spiritual walk. And it's, it's similar, this isolation and insulation that the legalist would, would practice in that day and age. It's similar to the way the Christian legalist of our day would carry themselves. This idea of I have to isolate and insulate myself from the pagan world around me. And so typically, if you're a Christian legalist today where you feel defiled by the world, what you do is you have a tendency to, to live your life in a bubble and to try and insulate yourself from, you know, the sinful practices of the world. So typically, legalists in our day have the attitude that says, you know, all alcohol is sin. 
all alcohol. You can't have, if you have one drink, you're in sin. Uh, if you dress up for, for Halloween, it's satanic. That's sin. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, somebody who's more legalistic minded might maintain that going to an R rated movie is sin. And you say, well, it is. Well, that would make you a legalist in that respect. You're like, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this thing. Now, on the other side of this legalism coin is the person who's more liberty-minded. This is a person who, who has more liberties. They, they rejoice in their freedoms in Christ. And so somebody who's more liberty-minded might respond to a legalist this way. The legalist would say, well, going to any R-rated movies is sin. It's bad. And the person who's more liberty-minded would say, what about the Passion of the Christ? That's rated R. What about that? I can go to that. You know, and so that there's, there's this constant... you know, back and forth between the person who says, I have liberty in Christ, and the person who says, man, I want to separate, I want to live in the bubble, I want to isolate myself, and there's this constant tension. Uh, The liberty-minded Christian would say to his fellow Christian brothers in Corinth, he'd say, man, you're worried about being defiled by pagan gods in partaking of meat, but there's no such thing. They're fake. They're not real. These are figments of the person's mind. And so they want to offer to some fake and phony God. I don't care. You know, there's only one true and living God. And and that God made cows out of steak. And as it turns out, that steak, that filet mignon is on sale right now for half price. And so I'm having a barbecue, baby. And you need to lighten up and have a drink. That's basically what the what the liberty-minded Christian would say. Now, if things, again, just stayed there, there there'd be no problem, really. If, if the legalist said, man, I'm really uncomfortable with all this stuff. I want to isolate myself. I want to worship God in a very conservative way, and I want to keep the world as far from me as possible. Hey, that's cool. And if the liberty-minded Christian said, okay, I'm going to worship God in a more liberal way, Uh, and he did so by faith, well, each one is free to exercise, to work out their own salvation between them and the Lord. And and things would be cool if that's the way it worked out. The problem is it never works out that way. It never stays that way. Typically what happens and what was happening here in Corinth was that the situation produced contention between the legalist and between the the, uh, liberty-minded Christian. And so the legalist said... You're eating pagan meat? You're going to hell, man. You know, you, you bought, you went shopping for steak at the Corinthian idol meat market? You sinner, you know? And this was the legalist interaction with, with the, the liberty Christian. The liberty-minded guy said, lighten up, have some steak, get a beer. It's cool, dude. You're freaking out over nothing. And so they, they were you know, having this kind of conflict. Now, this kind of stuff happens all the time. Seriously. True story. Uh, several years ago, we go on a, um, on a cruise ship for a marriage retreat as part of a church. We've got, you know, you know 100 people, a couple hundred people on this, on this cruise ship that's part of this marriage retreat. And, uh, you know, they have shipboard activities. Some are cool to participate in, some not so much. You have to be discerning. Well, they're having bingo in, in, one, in one section. And a whole bunch, like 80% of all the people that were part of the marriage retreat decided to go to this thing. So basically, we took over the whole room where they're having this bingo thing. So it was fun. We're like, yeah, let's go. 
And it's, it's five bucks for, for a bingo card, okay? Five bucks for, for two hours of entertainment. That's a bargain at twice the price. I took my wife to the movies last week, 24 bucks for a two-hour movie, Moneyball, don't see it. And uh, it's all right, but just wait for it to come out on DVD or whatever. But sorry, Brad. Anyway, like he's listening. So, um, <laughs> so uh, you know, he never calls, he never writes. Anyway, it's five bucks. Man, that's cheap entertainment. I don't care who you are. And I, and I don't care. I'm, I'm not looking to win. I, you know, I'm just there. And I'm sitting next to my friend Jim McGrath, who is just nuts. And he's screaming and hollering. And we're having a great... We had a ball, man. Well, I get home from the marriage cruise. And I get an email from this gal who's mad at me that me, as a pastor, was gambling. How could you, Pastor Ted? I'm like, well, how'd you know I was there? Well, I was playing bingo. Uh-huh. Well, it's okay for me. It's not okay for you. Really? I'm like, and I, I swear, it's the Holy Spirit. I'm like, do you play bunko? Well, you know, we, we just play for candy bars. We're not pay, playing for money kind of thing. I'm like, come on. Seriously, you're going to beat me with that stick, you know? And so this kind of stuff, the, the legalists fighting with those that have, you know, liberty in Christ, there's contention all the time. And so here's the issue. This is, the, this is what the Corinthians are going through. And the issue for us and the question really for us is, where do you draw the line between Christian liberty and legalism? This is a, you know, This is a huge issue for Christians. So where do you draw the line? Well, here in our text, Paul spells out three things to consider in answering that question. Where do you draw the line between legalism and liberty? And and I guess as we get into it, let me start with John 17, 15. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Uh, and, um, And Jesus did this. Jesus prayed. He said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. And I'll leave that up there just for a second. I want to speak to that for a second. Here in this prayer, Jesus articulates the unique responsibility given to us Christians. The unique responsibility that we have is this. We're supposed to be in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world, right? Paul put it this way in the book of Romans. He said, don't let the world press you into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we're supposed to live in the world, but not be of the world. This is the the dual challenge. Now, I want you to notice Jesus prays two things in this prayer. First of all, he prays, number one, that we as Christians wouldn't be isolated from the world. In other words, we wouldn't close off from our culture and from the people in the culture who don't know Christ, who need to know Christ. He prays that we wouldn't close ourselves off from them. But conversely, he also prayed that we wouldn't be so much like the world that the world couldn't tell the difference, right? And, and so, the, you know, this is the opposite of closing yourself off from the world. This is being so compromised, so much like the culture, that as the culture looks at you, they say, you're just like me. You're no different. See, so Jesus prayed against these two things. He didn't want us to be isolated, but he didn't want us to be conformed to the world either. And these are the two twin tracks that Christians tend to ride on. We we tend to polarize to one extreme or the other. Uh, We're either uh, a conservative isolationist, we're a legalist, we are, some call it uh, a sectarianist, a sectarianism, where we 
boycott everything and we put the bubble around our life, or we polarize to the other side and we are liberally inclusive. Or, you know, uh, syncretism is something else that this is called. And we synchronize with the world around us. We exercise liberty. And, and so these are the two polar opposites that we tend to polarize to. Jesus prayed against both extreme because the extreme of each is sinful. What he wants is for us to have a balance. How do you balance the two? And that's what we're going to look at today. Three questions. If you're taking notes, here's the first question. First question is that you need to ask yourself... Does my liberty honor God? Does my liberty honor God? So when you're considering a matter, and the legalist says, oh, that's sin, and the, the you know, guy who rejoices in liberty says, ah, go, enjoy it. You have to figure, okay, first question, does my liberty honor God? Paul says this in verse 1, if you notice, he says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. That word knowledge... The way Paul uses it there, he's referring to knowledge of the Word of God. And, and so that's the first thing. Second Peter 3.18 exhorts us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And so the first thing that we need to ask ourselves before we indulge in a Christian liberty is we need to ask, how does this thing line up with Scripture? How does it line up with Scripture? Now, I'll use it as an example to articulate this thought, our alcohol policy here at Reliance Church. Um, prayed long and hard in establishing what our alcohol policy was going to be for our staff, uh, for our key volunteers, for our ministry leaders, for our pastors. And, and I will just say this, just so that I'm not misunderstood. At the very beginning, at the very outset, I want you to know my personal position on alcohol is I hate it. I hate alcohol. It destroys lives. It ruins marriages. Everyone I counsel who's been involved in adultery, and I say, I mean, this is an absolute statement. Every person in 20 years that I've counseled that's been involved in adultery, in adultery alcohol has been involved. My personal experience is that alcohol has wreaked havoc on my family. My grandparents on both sides struggled with alcohol. My grandmother on my mother's side committed suicide after years of struggling with alcohol addiction. My grandfather, fighter pilot in World War II and an alcoholic and struggled with alcoholism, was, wreaked havoc through our family. Ironically, that same grandfather, after he got his life clean, was himself uh, in a car accident with a guy who was drunk. The guy was drunk, popping pills, looking to commit suicide, came up the off-ramp of the freeway and got into a head-on collision with my grandfather. He spent three months in the ICU. He recovered, but he spent the rest of his life in horrible pain. His, his hip just shattered. And so I've seen alcohol just devastate. My, my personal experience, my marriage was almost ruined by my personal consumption of alcohol. And, and so there's a number of reasons I don't drink today. One is because I'm a pastor, but the biggest reason is because I'm, a, I'm an idiot when I drink. And so I hate alcohol. I hate it. I hate it. Now, if I had my, my way, our policy at the church would be, you don't drink one drop of alcohol, and, and, we'll, and we're good. But if you drink, you're out. That would be my personal policy if I had my way. But biblically, I can't make that our policy. Because God doesn't make that the policy according to Scripture. 
Is it a sin for Christians to drink? It all depends. See, if, if you, coming to this church on occasion, have, have a sip of alcohol and, and you, you, know, you have a drink, a glass of wine with dinner, and you don't get drunk, and that's the catch, because the Bible speaks very clearly, read through the book of Proverbs, that getting drunk is sinful. But to have a drink is not sinful in and of itself. In fact, the first miracle that Jesus performed was to transform water into wine. And so, having a drink of alcohol in and of itself is not sin. Now, I can make the argument that it is for pastors and elders. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, and there are those that argue with me, and I, I personally, I don't care. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says this, <laughs> that a pastor is to be blameless and that he's to be sober-minded. And then 1 Timothy 3, 3 says that a pastor is not to be given to wine. Now, some people mean, oh, well, that just means not drinking a lot. Well, then why does it go on to say that deacons should not be given too much wine? See, there's the distinction. So just those two verses right there tell me that pastors aren't supposed to drink ever at all. And so that's our policy. If you're a pastor, if you're an elder on staff, you can't drink ever again. You've made that choice that I'll never drink again. And if you want to have a drink... God bless you. Go be a pastor somewhere else. You won't be a pastor here and do that. That's our policy, and I make that biblically. But having said that, that's not what the Bible says for deacons. Again, 1 Timothy 3.8 says that a deacon is not to be given too much wine. Now, some people say, well, that means not intoxicated. No, because the Bible already speaks about that. And so what that means is that it's to be something that he does on a rare occasion and it's understood that he doesn't get drunk. Now, a deacon means one who serves. So that applies to anybody who serves in our church. First Timothy 3.10 says that deacons are to be tested and found blameless. So again, no abuse there. Now, accordingly, for our alcohol policy to honor God, according to God's word, and I'm just using this as, as an illustration, so bear with me. For our alcohol policy to honor God, it has to line up with his word. So here's what I've done. I forbid alcohol use for pastors, elders, anytime, anywhere, any amount. I forbid alcohol intoxication for everyone across the board. That's biblical. I forbid alcohol consumption at any Reliance Church event. That's just something that I have the prerogative to do, and we don't allow it anywhere. If you go to a Bible study and somebody has a glass of wine, I want a phone call because that Bible study won't be there anymore. You know, That's the, the stance that we take, and all of these are biblical stances. Now, having said all that, what's my alcohol policy for, for, for you? Here's what I do. I say, look, I can't forbid it because the Bible doesn't forbid it. I just discourage it. I just say, you know what, I just don't think it's, it's prudent. Nothing good comes from alcohol, really, seriously. It's, if it's not a big deal, then why is it a big deal? Just abstain from it, you know? So, so I encourage you, man, just abstain from it. Just, just avoid it. But if you have a drink, are you sinful? Are you being, are you being in sin? Can I make a policy that, pre- that precludes that? No, because God doesn't make a policy that precludes that. You get what I'm saying? So that's the first litmus test. We have to, we have to, to, you have this attitude when it comes to our liberties. What's the word of God have to say? Let's apply this idea to other liberties. Can I smoke pot? Pot smokers, man, you all know uh, Genesis. I say you all know, in case you're listening. (laughs) 
Genesis 1, 29 and 31. Every pot smoker you talk to, they all, they, they know the Bible, Genesis 1, 29. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Yes, God did say that. But they quote that scripture, ignoring the other scriptures that talk about it. Titus 3, Hebrews 13, Romans 13, all say that we're supposed to obey those who rule over us, right? And those who rule over us have made pot illegal. And so, you know, addition to that, Galatians 5, 20 and 21 lumps drunkenness and drug use together as sin. So the Bible's very clear. Biblically, can I smoke pot? No, it's, it's black and white. You can't smoke pot. You just can't do it. It's not biblical. Now, let's apply this biblical litmus test to my bingo story. Was it unbiblical for me to play bingo? Technically, no. All right, but listen, that's not the only consideration. See, when we're going through this this series of questions, as I said, Paul gives us three questions in our text. The first one is it biblical, but there's also a second question that we have to consider. And, And so the first one is, does it honor God? But here's the second question. Again, if you're taking notes, does my liberty honor others or does it harm others? Not only is my liberty biblical, but does it honor others Or does it harm others? This is the second question that we need to ask ourselves. See, here's what Paul says, verse 7, continuing through our text. He says, however, there is not, and he's just gotten finished making the point, look, gods aren't real, you know, they're just, they're they're, they're fake, they're phony, Uh, you know, (laughs) even if there are so-called gods, you know, they're they're just... (laughs) For us, there's only one God. He's made that point. Now he says in verse 7, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. In other words, what he's saying is that not everyone is mature enough to know that food sacrifice to idols uh, doesn't mean anything. This is his point here. He continues, he says, For some, verse 7, With consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. Paul talks about this idea in Romans 14 where he says whatever's not of faith is sin. This is the idea that Paul's conveying here to the Corinthians. He's saying, look, you know, that's whether or not God says it in his words, not the only consideration. You also got to take in mind what's my liberty, my exercise of my freedoms as, as a mature believer in Christ, what's that going to do to my weaker brother? That's the whole idea here. Verse 8, he says, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. He's, again, he's making it clear. Look, it's not, it's not an issue that the food is sinful. Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth, it's what comes out of the mouth, right? And so he's, ma- he's making that concession. He says, it's not about the food, it's about your brother. Verse 9, he says, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? In other words, he's still, if you talk the guy into eating the meat, but he still thinks it's sin, well, for him, it is sin. 
Because he's, he's violating his conscience. Even though you, with your superior knowledge, I, 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 let me choose a different phrase instead of superior. Either you, you in your spiritual maturity, can, can rationalize and go, the idol's fake, the God's fake, this doesn't mean anything, and I'm, I can honor God and eat this meat. He's not, in, he's not there. He's thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm eating food that was worshipped to an idol, and this is a compromise, and so it, it's sin for him. That's the whole idea that, that Paul's making here. Verse 11, and he says, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Verse 12, But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You remember when... when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to, to Emmaus there. And, he, and Paul, what was Paul in the midst of doing? He was persecuting Christians. He was throwing Christians in jail. He was killing Christians. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, you're persecuting me. And that's the idea here. That if you lead your brother straight, if you're like, man, lighten up and have a beer. And he has a beer, but inside he thinks it's sin. Then what you've done is you, you have just led him astray. See, listen, as Christians, the big E on the I chart of your life is that it's not about you. Can I say that again? The big E is it's not about you. And we live our lives, as, especially as American Christians, saying, I've got rights. And, and you know, it's... This, this is infringing on my right. I have a right to eat me. And, and you need to just get over it. I've got a right to have a glass of beer with my dinner. Just lighten up and have a drink, man. Well, and the, the whole idea is if this guy does lighten up and have a drink, but he does so with a weak conscience where he thinks, man, I'm sinning against God, he is sinning against God. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so what John says, guys, is this. He says, some Christians are weaker than us, and we can either help them by being considerate of their immature sensitivities, or we can hinder them by being inconsiderate of their immature sensitivities. Several years ago, I went to, uh, to Indonesia on one of several trips over there, and I had a guy with me on his first trip. We were in Bali, and there on the hotel grounds, there was a Hindu temple. And it was very elaborate, and there were offerings that were there, these food offerings in this big, ornate stone, you know, sort of thing, outdoors in this, in this uh, cordoned-off area. And you entered through this sort of decorative gate, and I went walking right in. Well, he sensed that there was something not right, and he put on the brakes at the threshold. He couldn't cross the threshold. I turned around, I'm like, what's going on? He's like, white as a ghost. What is this place? I'm like, it's a Hindu temple. He's like freaking out that I'm in there and he's not about to go in there. I go, dude, relax. Our God's bigger than their God. And in that moment, he was like, you could see this look of realization on his face. He was like, oh yeah, our God is bigger than their God. So by faith, he walked through that gate and we walked into that Hindu temple uh, there in the, on this hotel grounds. And we're just looking around. And, and again, it's by faith. I'm like, I'm not there to worship the Hindu God. 
I'm there just to look around and see what are these crazy people doing, you know? I'm a, I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God, so I don't care about this. And Anthony, by faith, was able to do that. Now, if he wasn't able to do that, well, I wouldn't have forced him to go in. If he's like, man, I'm not going in, I would have said, hey, brother, that's cool. Because again, if I would have coerced him to going in, it would have been something that he was not doing by faith. I would have been leading him into sin. So again, going back to my bingo story, when this chick confronts me about, you know, oh, you shouldn't be playing bingo, in light of this second question, this litmus test, should I exercise this liberty or not? Well, I ask myself the question, does my liberty honor others or does it harm others? Well, I have this conversation with her and I say, look, you play bunko, right? I mean, it's not, I'm not there looking to pay my mortgage, you know, and I'm not there betting my mortgage money. It's five bucks. I spend four times that going to a movie. It's not a big deal. No, she wasn't backing down. So what did I say? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that offended you. I'll never do that again. And I meant it. I'll never do it again. And that's the right answer because it's not just about is this biblical, is this not biblical. It also has to be considered, hey, man, am, am I honoring this person or am I harming this person by exercising this liberty? Yes, it's a liberty of mine. Yes, I can do it. But I couldn't do it leading her astray like that. It was going to harm her. And so, again, I need to be mindful of that. And so the big idea of using our liberty to honor others is that we yield for their sake. And this brings us to the third question that we need to ask ourselves. Again, the first question we ask is, hey, does my liberty honor God? Is this in accordance with God's word? The second question is, does my liberty honor others or harm them? Here's the third question. The third question to find balance between liberty and legalism is this. Am I willing to yield my liberty for the benefit of others? And this is what Paul says in conclusion of our chapter, verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. See, in Paul's case, the issue was meat sacrificed to idols. That was the big issue. Now, we don't deal a lot with that, unless your friend is like, you know, a vegan and a, and a vegetarian. I was going to say something that I would regret. So, <laughs> unless they have strong convictions and that's the issue, it's really not that big of an issue. But we have other things that are a big issue that we deal with. And, and I want to kind of bring this home in a different way, where we have to yield our liberties in some instances. You know, alcohol. If you're a brother or a sister here and alcohol's not a big deal for you, you don't struggle with it, you've never been drunk, you don't, you know, and you can have a glass of wine with dinner, cool. Good for you. But, you know, you need to be mindful, especially if you're somebody that's, that's known, like maybe you've, you're very much involved in ministry. The request that I humbly make to our leaders is, can you not drink in town? Because really, especially if you're working in the children's ministry, man, you know, kids go in, they see you having a drink. It's just, man, you might make them stumble, you know? And some people go, oh, well, that's just ridiculous. Where do you draw the line? You know what? I don't know where you draw the line. That love is where you draw the line, really. And it's, it's, it's not black and white. It's gray, man. And so I just say, hey, can you just err on the side of caution? You know, if you're going out to dinner with somebody and you know that they struggle with alcohol, Hey, that's, that's a no-brainer, man. Don't, don't have anything to drink. 
You know, if you're making plans to go out and, hey, we're going to go shoot pool down at the Q Club or whatever it is, and you know a guy has had, had some struggles in the past, they're serving, they're serving booze there. Let's, let's, do, let's do something different, man. Let's just not do that. And, and again, this is a, a real-life application for us that we can just go, hey, how can I yield my liberties in a way that's going to that's gonna honor this person? Ladies, let me, let me illustrate something else. You're a tire, okay? Do you have liberty to, to wear, you know, a dress that, that looks good on you? Yeah, you do. Do you have liberty to make choices with your clothing? Yes, you do. Are there times when maybe you could yield a liberty for the sake of not causing someone to stumble? Absolutely there is. And again, I'm not going to get legalistic about this. I'm just going to say love would dictate that you look in the mirror and say, is this something that is going to cause someone to stumble? And maybe here's a good litmus test for you, those of you ladies who are married. Would I want, think of a woman that makes you insanely jealous, would I want her to wear something like this around my husband? You know, and and maybe that might cause you to, you know, put on a sweater or something. I don't know, you know, but... Again, it's just a practical application, something that you could say, hey, this is a way that I could yield perhaps a liberty. Here's a, a, a silly example in my home. I love watching The Simpsons. I think it's, I think it's hysterical. Um, my wife hates it. It really bothers her. I don't watch The Simpsons because it bothers my wife so much. So it's just one of those things where I go, okay, I'm not going to do that. And I don't do that because my conscience is bothered or that it's sinful for me. No, but it causes her trouble. So I'm like, okay, I won't do it. Um, and, you know, there's a million things. We could, we, I mean, we could we spend a long time up here. But my, my prayer for you is that you, because I trust the Holy Spirit working right now, there are things that maybe in your life that maybe you've had the attitude that says, hey, this, this is my right. I have a liberty to do this. It's not sin for me. And maybe it's not. But maybe it's causing someone to stumble. And rather than say, man, they're just, they need to grow up. They need to lighten up and have a beer, man. Rather than saying that, maybe you need to say, you know what? They, if they lightened up and had a beer, that would be sin for them. And I, ca- I can't do that to that person. So rather, just as Christ gave himself for me, son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if the Lord can die for me, I can certainly sacrifice a liberty for him. And so I just ask you, what liberty is God calling you to sacrifice for the sake of others? A couple of scriptures and we'll close. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, Luke 17, 1, he says, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Paul told the Philippians this in Philippians chapter 2. He said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, as we partake of communion today, it's just the perfect opportunity to keep a short account of God and to remember just the best illustration of what this lesson is all about. Jesus laid his life down for us because we're sinners. 
The bread represents his body broken for us, and the juice represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we'll be in in a few weeks, that we need to do this often in remembrance of the Lord, and that as we do so, we need to do so being reflective of ourselves, being self-examining. How am I living my life? And, uh, and so it's good, it's right. Jesus said we should do this often in remembrance of him for us to partake of communion together. And so today, in application of the lesson, I, I would say as we partake of communion and as we mem- remember what Jesus has sacrificed for us, maybe we could also just kind of take a walk with how the Lord's spoken to us through 1 Corinthians 8 and say, Lord, how are you calling me to sacrifice for you and for the sake of my brethren? What can I lay down? What can, what can I surrender? for the sake of someone else.